I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzone. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we explore one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner with Gould Evans, and I am joined today once again by my friend Chuck Barone, founder of Strong Towns. I also want to let you know that this is the final episode of 2020. We will be taking a two-week hiatus for the holiday season and see you again in the new year. So let's all hope that 2021 is much less of a dumpster fire than the curse 2020. So Chuck, welcome. Thank you for joining me again today. Hey, one of the highlights of 2020 has been you hosting Upzone. So that has made it all worth it to me, Abby. Well, that is so nice. It's just been an honor and it has uh, been very interesting to look at different articles and think about them and talk a little bit about them with you each week. So thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So in honor of the end of 2020, I have an article we will be talking about today that was published in Reason by author Christian Britschke with the title, Will City Survive 2020? The article presents a very extensive and thorough analysis of how the history of American settlement has been altered incrementally over time, largely influenced by technology, culture, and economics, but also altered by sudden events like pandemics. He draws upon the many events our society has experienced throughout 2020, raising questions about how this year might inform the future of human settlement in America. Normalcy has, of course, been drastically upended this year, and our economy and culture face changes that have still yet to be fully realized. Many workers are now working remotely, while Others are unable to work because of the economic shutdowns. Cities, transit agencies, small businesses are facing massive loss of revenue due to health risks and shutdowns from the pandemic. And in some cases, cities have pursued targeted deregulation to enable things like outside dining and open streets. The summer protests, of course, have shined light on multi-generational racial tensions and the prolonged psychological and sometimes physical damage in our communities continues to be reckoned with. So these are just a few of the many, many topics that arose out of 2020 and certainly have broad and interconnected implications for how our cities might move forward into 2021 and beyond. And we have covered many of these issues throughout the year and more. And I'll start just by asking you, Chuck, the question posed by this article, will cities survive 2020? Well, we have two weeks left. (laughs) (laughs) I would say the odds are pretty good. No, um, in all seriousness, I do think that from a historical standpoint, the Black Plague didn't kill off cities. Coronavirus will not. I was kind of struck and I did wind up thinking quite a bit as I was reading this and as I was thinking about it, about just like, what would it take to actually, you know, meaningfully destroy cities or meaningfully damage cities to the point where we would say, you know, I I don't think any, like, I don't think New York City is going away. I don't think Brainerd, my town is going away, but what would it take to have them like metaphorically go away? And it's interesting because I think 
you, you could really make an argument that the closest that they've come to actually having that was in the 50s and 60s, 70s, you know, when when we abandoned cities, when we basically had economic policies and strategies that massively devalued cities and you know, negatively impacted the economics of those places. I think we are still in the wake of that and I think we're still dealing with that. I think a lot of the things that we have done now to have this urban renaissance of the, you know, the creative class era and uh, all the Richard Florida work and and you know every, everything that's kind of come out of the last 25 30 years of city renewal I think has largely been a financial mirage. I'm not saying there's not something real there and I'm not saying people don't like cities and want to live in cities. I live in a city. I love cities. Uh, but I do think that COVID and the whole pandemic has the, the greatest likelihood of shaking out in financial terms. And I, I think in that sense, cities are ridiculously fragile right now today. And it's very hard to say what will happen. If you said, you know, will cities survive? I, I think if the sentence is, will cities survive in their current form, I have a hard time saying yes. I don't think that they will. I think that they will have to uh, evolve and adapt in some very significant and meaningful ways. What those will be, I, I think, are interesting to ponder. But I have been continually surprised by the way we have kind of adapted. Let me put it this way. The innovations that we have come up with over the last two decades, three decades in terms of cities is, you know, the primary one is our capacity to kick the financial reckoning down the road and, and to come up with new innovative ways of financing things and, uh, and, and keeping the overall economy going in ways that kept all of these historic imbalances from actually coming to bear. Can we continue to do that for another decade, two, three, five? Maybe. Will it all stop in three months from now? You know, quite possibly. That's the big unknown for me. And I, I've been wrong on that one many times in the past in my gut. You know, uh, the things that I thought would happen have not turned out in the way they have in a macro sense, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, well, I think it's interesting to think about associating the 1970s and suburbanization with the end of cities at the time. And we know that that wasn't really the end of cities, but it was the end of a lot of things. It was the end of the way we traditionally had built cities. And that was largely caused by a disruption in our world. It was a new technology that was the automobile that enabled us to move further distances in shorter times. And that essentially allowed our our society to spread out and it really changed the way we we developed our society. And I think one of the insights from this article that had me thinking a lot this week was that historically humans have experienced both incremental and abrupt changes that evolve how we live. So Strong Towns talks a lot about the sort of incremental adaptations that have influenced human settlement for thousands of years, frankly, prior to modernity. 
And the author brings up the previous epidemics that had led to other abrupt uh, human inventions or interventions that intended to sustain urban environments in the past. So he talks about yellow fever and how that spurred uh, the first efforts to start cleaning up city streets and cholera outbreaks that led to the creation of the first sewer systems in American cities. So developments that essentially led to significant reductions in urban mortality in the past. And when thinking about incremental versus abrupt interventions in our society, I can definitely see how we have for the past several decades now been experiencing more abrupt, I think, rather than incremental change. I, Of course, like I mentioned, we have the introduction of the automobile. That is one of, the, of course, the most obvious examples of an abrupt technological change that altered the way our society operates in a very fundamental way. And of course, how we build cities. And it sort of feels like since the end of the last Great Depression, maybe, through all these technological advances and economic instability, social disorder, and, and now this pandemic, disruptive change has become exponentially more common. And it makes me wonder personally if we can expect to continue to see disruptive change into the future or if we can kind of get back to a more incremental model of change and I think that would kind of look like a more stable model. Well, let, let's go back to Nassim Taleb, you know, the patron saint of strong towns thinking. His core argument in pretty much that runs through all of his books, starting with Fool by Randomness and, and then The Black Swan, Anti-Fragile and Skin in the Game are the last two. The idea is that if you suppress volatility, uh, you don't get rid of volatility. You just put it off to a, a bigger a, a bigger place. What you would like is a lot of small earthquakes. What we have tried to manufacture is, you know, no earthquakes, like absolute stability over time. But then what you do is you run the risk of having one catastrophic earthquake. And in a sense, you save yourself all the small tremors, you know, in between, but you expose yourself to this massive, massive tremor. And I, I feel like that's what you're alluding to. That's what we've seen with the large financial crises, that's what we've seen with, you know, everything from after World War II, just the, the massive explosion of post-war expansion. You talked about, you know, how systems change in incremental ways, but then also in large ways. And a reading of Darwin that is true to, you know, what Darwin would write is very much like Hemingway wrote about bankruptcy. You know, it happens gradually and then all at once. Evolution is something that happens gradually and then all at once. And, and I think we can think of it in terms of the players within the system having a period of time where they, they build strength and they start to differentiate and they start to, you know, in, in a very organic way, compete. And then something will happen in nature. Maybe it's a flood or it's a, it's a forest fire or it's a introduction of a new species that has no natural competitor. In the human landscape, it might be a, a bankruptcy or an insolvency crisis. It might be a war, a famine, a, a pandemic. These things tend to, in a sense, call the non-adaptable. And I'll use this term, and I, I know this can sound a little crass, particularly in the environment we're in now, but it tends to call the weak and the not adaptable, the, the ones that if we were just looking at strictly as natural systems, we're not set up to survive. 
And what results from that is this very sudden and jarring step in the evolutionary process. I feel like looking at American cities, what we have done to a large degree is made them all fragile in the very same way. And when I talk about cities being fragile places, being insolvent, being unproductive, what we're really talking about is places that have suppressed for a long, long time, those small earthquakes, those small tremors, the, 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 the diet and exercise that keeps you strong and healthy. And they're now sitting there like financial kindling, like ready to blow up with the tiniest spark. I, I've been astounded this year how we've kept them running. I have real, real concerns that this is not going to last into the future, particularly when you hear things like, you know, the head of the the MTA in New York saying, hey, without tens of billions of dollars of federal bailout, uh, this system is going to come to a halt. You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about Wyoming shutting down entire cities because they don't have the budget. Those are two ends of a spectrum, but the entire spectrum is experiencing the same stress at the same time in the same way. That is, by definition, a very fragile system. Well, I think as it relates to cities, we keep hearing about this concept of an urban exodus as if other environments are sort of immune to these disruptions that we're all experiencing. We see these articles all year claiming that New York City is dead forever and how cities are canceled. And meanwhile, here I am in a mid-sized city staring out my window, hearing crickets like that Bill Hicks bit. I want to quote the author who reflects back on historical pandemic disruptions. He, he talks about the stubborn unwillingness of people to abandon cities, even in the face of periodic epidemics that gave rise to interventions that made urban life less deadly. So this statement actually feels very positive to me because I think that we can learn a lot from this year in ways that aren't just about innovations that make living in a city more sanitary, I suppose, but also economic insights that impact the future of cities and the future of local economies. And I think that that's an important distinction here because it's really kind of the blowing up of our economy that has caused it to be so fragile. I think one of the important things that that I've been thinking about this year is that our places really need to be diverse in use and residential needs to precede retail development. And this build it and they will come model is really no longer sustainable, especially as markets continue to change. And downtown and urban centers can no longer also follow the office plus retail plus tourism, I guess, model. The commercial places that were hit hardest by the shutdowns were the ones with no people living in them. And the disruption of that model and the tourism model is it is creating really heavy burdens on municipal budgets. And we've we've talked about that all year. All these cities are experiencing major hits to their economies because of relying on sort of commuters or tourism or even global industry. And I wonder perhaps uh, how expanding agency maybe at an even more localized level, like a neighborhood even, can be manifested to cover the potential lack of municipal capacity in the years ahead and how maybe even governances can be restructured to respond to more local needs. 
Right. This is actually what I see happening in the most innovative cities that we have. I mean, if I, I think if you ask the typical American, you know, what are America's most innovative cities? They would say, what, San Francisco, Austin, Miami. I mean, they would go down, you know, not to, uh, not to pick on Richard Florida too much in this podcast, but, you know, they would go down the list of the creative class cities, right? If you ask me, what are the most truly creative cities in North America? Detroit, Memphis, Buffalo, places that have really, I think, learned how to survive and how to have prosperity amid great distress. We've highlighted in our strongest town competition, a city like Muskegon, Michigan, On paper, Muskegon, Michigan is a basket case. I mean, has lost tens of thousands of people, de-industrialized, has just really, really struggled. Go there and you're going to be just shocked and amazed. It is not only is a beautiful place, full of life, lots of amazing people, a great entrepreneurial spirit. There's a lot of great stuff happening in Muskegon because they've started to do things differently. We can all learn a lot from places like that. I do think that, is New York going to be drained of people? I don't think so. Is San Francisco going to see a decrease in its population? If I had to bet, I would bet it sees over the coming decades a market increase in population. What I think, though, might be real within that, or if you scratch the surface of that, I think it might be different people. If New York got poorer, that would not surprise me at all. And it, you know, if more and more people decamped from Manhattan and set up their hedge fund in Miami or, or wherever, you know, outside of New York, that, that wouldn't surprise me at all, you know, but that's different than having nobody there or having the place depopulate the way it did in the 1960s and 1970s. I don't see us going back to that. I I think cities are going to help lead us out of this, but it might be a different, more dynamic mix and it might, quite frankly, be a different type of city. I think a Kansas City runs the risk of being too affluent to adapt, but not big enough to kind of, uh, you know, be the tail that wags the dog. I think a city like Minneapolis might be in that same range, right? Uh, we'll see. I, I think there's a lot of th- there's a lot of room for dynamism in both of those places. But if I had to put a bet, like where are the places that I think We'll see the most improvement, the most growth, the most prosperity, the most wealth creation, the most dynamism. It's to me, those cities like Detroit, like Buffalo, like Cleveland, you know, like Memphis that have figured out what they need to do to adapt to a different paradigm. Well, yeah, there's this lesson about flexibility that I think has begun to become more apparent this year. And I think we'll probably continue, especially this year with regard to how we think about public space and how we think about even providing more extensive options for housing. The author goes into that a little bit, specifically with with things like zoning. He associates the invention of zoning to many other innovations developed to sustain human settlement, except with the spin that zoning, particularly the explicit separation of uses, actually did much less to improve public health than other innovations. It's interesting to think about 
how we regulate ourselves and and who controls cities, especially the original intent of zoning, and how that has evolved over time to establish different sets of expectations based on cultural priorities. There's an evolution from dealing with nuisance and public health issues towards explicitly segregating communities by land use and, in the worst cases, socioeconomic class. And we see a pretty great variety now in how form-based codes have been established and implemented in more recent years, some more restrictive than others. So the author mentions the debate between bottom-up organic urbanism and top-down centralized urbanism, where the top-down regime has prevailed in the world of city building for a very long time. And we saw this year how some municipalities have become much more responsive in providing flexibility, particularly with rapid targeted deregulation that helped spur open street cafes. So outdoor dining solutions really required cities to waive longer processes and fees that would have otherwise been required. And the article also talks about how zoning in some cities have become more adaptive in order to support at-home businesses and accessory dwelling units, for example. So on one hand, I, I, I kind of see this as a way to really start to push towards more bottom-up urbanism, but we often kind of talk about, about zoning as being the main issue, I, I feel, in the planning world. And it resonates with me as someone who works on zoning a lot, but on the other hand, I do feel that it can be a little bit of a red herring in these discussions too, because there's there so many other drivers that are creating land use complacency. And, and one of those drivers, for example, is how we tax ourselves and the deep role that plays in our physical environments. I know you've talked with Joe Minicosi many times on your show how we largely tax ourselves based on property improvements rather than the land or the true cost of public services. And this means that an acre of a parking lot in the downtown virtually pays nothing compared to an acre of land with a building on it. And that building is maybe providing housing or jobs or other things that make our society great and it makes it operate and it makes it productive. So if speculating on land was no longer profitable to investors, I I think there would be a very strong incentive to actually do something with all this vacant land, all this space that currently exists in cities across America, and that this would have really major implications for uh, that I think would actually create or demand zoning reform. And it could also certainly result in lower land prices, which in turn would help uh, reduce housing prices. So to me, that this, that situation is just the root of so many problems today and a great driver for the lack of movement in our places. And I think in the 2020s, we need to be focused on making land speculation or, or being unproductive with our spaces no longer profitable as a long-term investment. Right, right. I I hear what you're saying. I I love Reason Magazine. I think that they fill a very important niche, and I really like them, and I like their takes. And and I think when it comes to zoning in particular, they've filled a very necessary part of the conversation that looks correctly at zoning as having done more harm than good. 
I didn't believe that 20 years ago when I was a zoner, you know, when my job was to administer zoning ordinances. Uh, I came to understand it as I did that longer and ultimately got out of that business because it, it, it didn't meet with my values and, and what I thought was best for the communities I was working in. That being said, I feel like the biggest challenge we have to overcome right now is almost a challenge of orthodoxy. If you look at the systems we've created, they're largely centralized. They're, they're increasingly centralized and top down in a way that, you know, even when I was a kid, we would have looked at and said, well, this is how they do it in communist China. This is how they do it in authoritarian countries. Why are we centralizing? Why are we becoming more top down? I think part of what we are going to need to resolve, I don't think this is a as much a political issue as it is a cultural issue. It's more us. We have to figure this out. How do we reach more of a, a balanced narrative in, in our bottom-up approach? We need zoning reform. Our cities desperately need to have a libertarian ethic applied to our zoning codes. But when it looks at like our local economics, the last thing we need is a libertarian ethic. I mean, the last thing we need is some you know, notion that comes in and says that somehow Walmart and Amazon and, uh, you know, uh, big housing subdivisions are an expression of the free market system. Uh, you know, it, it, I've actually advocated the opposite, that we need cities that are going to be very proactive in protecting their local markets. Let's have a marketplace at the local level, but let's protect it from, you know, unfair competition in the same way we use, you know, in international trade, sometimes tariffs and, and restrictions and, and, and treaties and other things to, you know, protect American industry from unfair trading practices. That is something that gets me zero traction with libertarians. How do we break out of this straight line dogma where, you know, you, you can't be for zoning reform unless you are also for ABCD? You can't be have concerns over wealth inequality and racial inequity unless you also buy ABCD, you know, all these other like litany of things. I think at the local level, what we really need is we need people of all kind of political dispositions working with the best of intentions to try to figure out individual customized neighborhood by neighborhood, city by city types of approaches to solving this that that may quite frankly look very different in your neighborhood in Kansas City than they're going to look in my neighborhood in Brainerd than they're going to look in San Francisco or Buffalo or Atlanta uh, or or Manhattan and I think we have to find a way to be okay with that that to me that that feels like our biggest struggle right now is that we've allowed ourselves to be locked in this this mindset that we not only can but we should vanquish the foes who disagree with us and then apply our vision of the world from a top-down way on everyone else. Conservatives do this. Liberals do this. Uh, to a degree, the libertarians have tried to do this. Um, yeah. you know, they've been less successful, but <laughs> I, I think- I wonder why. Well, you know, it's, it's in their nature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I do think that in terms of creating responses, that's our, our biggest option. What is the quote? We've, we've met the enemy and they are us, right? I think that it's, it is us 
that needs to uh, to change here. Yeah, totally. I feel that dogma is the death of innovation. And I, I see a lot, you know, of course, our federal politics are like crazy town. And I think it's so important that we not detach from that because it is important, but it's important that we don't let what's going on at that level and those extremes play out at the local level. It's important that we kind of concentrate on what we can see and what we can touch and our own communities and not be too held up by whether or not somebody, my neighbor next door is on my my political team, you know, and, and not be too married to to a dogma, basically, that that you frankly didn't create, you know, we, those aren't necessarily our ideas. And so it's important to be open to what actually works and trying things that work and, and being able to adapt if it doesn't work. And that I think is going to be really difficult for us to do culturally, because we have given a lot of agency to other, other organizations. I live in a city and as a citizen, I am accountable for very little. I, I can volunteer for things, but I, it's like culturally, I'm not really expected to do th- those types of things. And I, I think that that is something that needs to be reintroduced, that people are more involved and that people have more agency for their local communities and have more say in what happens and, and that, that our cities are not are not intended to be um, barriers to that. They're they're not gatekeepers. Well, you talked about zoning reform at one point, and I know places where people oppose zoning reform because it is, you know, uh, supporting uh, big developers and evil capitalists. And I know places that have, you know, been against zoning reform because you know, the socialists are trying to intervene and tell you what you can and can't do. I think that we just need good neighborhood level. I mean, the, the equivalent of like a civic barn raising is what we really need in our cities. And that <laughs> that's what we're trying to build at Strong Towns, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, and it's like, okay, well, how do we build great neighborhoods? Just, uh, you know, let's start with whatever we are trying to do, whatever any community is trying to do and figure out how how to do it, right? It, it could be through zoning reform. Maybe there's other ways to, to drive the outcomes that you're looking for, but maybe we, we don't need to be too married to whatever those tools may be. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. But of course, once again, before we conclude, we're going to do the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything we've been up to this week, things that have been captivating our attention. Uh, So Chuck, what have you been doing this week? I am finishing on my book. So that's been like till two, three in the morning every night. But I've interspersed that with, um, with a lot of baking. I, I am about halfway into a book called The Sentinel by Lee Child. It's the latest Jack Reacher novel. I, I think I said before that I save all my fiction for December. So I'm having a delightful December, you know, going through all these fiction books while I put together. Last night it was um, Ginger Snaps and Salted Caramel Chocolates. Nice. That sounds yeah. delicious. I'm actually this weekend starting on that gingerbread house that I've been talking about. 
I got some of the ingredients and I'm getting a few more tomorrow and then I'm going to start baking that and putting it together. And if it doesn't come out very good, please don't make fun of me because I, I don't know what to expect, but I have all the cutouts ready. It's going to be a model of my house and hopefully it'll look nice. I'm in like full Christmas mode. I, I had my birthday this week, which was weird, but nice. And I went to um, Union Station, which has this really cool uh, – so Kansas City has a beautiful Union Station for anybody who hasn't been to Kansas City or seen the Union Station. It's like a major landmark in the city, and it actually has running trains out of it, so you can go places, and they, they have a huge Christmas display every year. So I went to that this week and checked out all the trains and everything, all the all the uh, toy replica trains that they had set up and all the Christmas decorations and lights. And it made me kind of miss taking the train. I, I sometimes would take it to go home to St. Louis for the holidays. And I, I won't do that this year, but hopefully in in future future years when we're not in a pandemic, I'll be able to get on a train again and maybe maybe go up to Chicago or something. That would be delightful. Yes. Yes. Sounds very nice to travel again. (laughs) I can't wait. Well, yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today, Chuck. I won't talk to you until probably 2021. So I hope you have a wonderful rest of the year and a relaxing break. So thank you. Thank Thank you you very much. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Merry Christmas to you. and, And I hope that you guys have a a beautiful time. We have so much to be thankful for, don't we? Yes. I am exceedingly grateful this year. So yeah, I think we all have a lot to be grateful for. I do too. So thank you everyone so much for listening to another episode of Upzoned and uh, keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. Take care.